You're listening to Nonprofit Confidential, episode number five. Hey there, welcome to Nonprofit Confidential. This is a show that's all about sharing insider tips and compelling stories to help you build an exceptional nonprofit organization. I'm your host, Sheila Nemishakavi, and I'm the founder of Third Suite, which is a consulting firm specializing in early stage and small to mid-size nonprofit organizations. Here, it's my job to share with you simple tricks and strategies that you can implement to take your organization to the next level. Our episode last week featured Adria Scharf. She's the executive director of the Richmond Peace Education Center. Our wide-ranging conversation covered conflict resolution, trauma healing, advice for taking a stand on sensitive topics, and tons of tips for working with youth. Hint, it involves lots of pizza. Our guest today is Yawande Austin. She's the executive director of the Change Rocks Foundation, as well as the founder of the Global Institute for Diversity and Change. She is a total powerhouse who, get this, has shared the stage with the Black Eyed Peas and Maroon 5. She's used her platform as an artist to create change both domestically and internationally. Among just a few of her accolades, Yawande is a President Barack Obama Lifetime Achievement Award honoree. She has won the 2018 African Women in Leadership Phenomenal Women of Worth Award, and she was nominated as a CNN Hero in 2013, 2014, and 2017. She's an international expert in strategic diversity, leadership, and social responsibility. Oh, and she's hilarious and so much fun to hang out with. I won't make you wait any longer. Here's my chat with Yawande Austin. Hi, Yawande. Welcome to Nonprofit Confidential. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to get into this conversation and learn so much more about everything you have going on. There is so much. Your title is Artist, Advocate, and Ambassador. That really encompasses so much. So let's just dive right into it. Tell me about yourself. What's your background and how is it all woven together? How did you get here? Believe it or not, my mission to do the work that I do today started when I was just a child. I was definitely one of those weird kids that spent more time in my closet than I did anywhere else. I just had this comfort of solitude. And within that solitude, I created this space that inspired me to dream. I wrote songs and poetry and read the stories of pioneers that certainly didn't seek fame or to be historical figures like Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass, Sojourner Truth, who just made a decision one day that if things were going to change, they had to be the ones to do it. They couldn't wait on anybody else to save them. And that really sparked a flame inside of me at an early age, at a time when I decided that I wanted to change the world too. It was through reading their stories that I learned that change begins with them. And so all of the work that I've created over the past 14 years and change, it's amazing how fast the time goes, really started with this premise that 
we have the power to change the world. We can't, can't wait on anybody else to, to do it for us. And so that change started with my love of the arts. And I discovered very early on that artists, activists like Marian Anderson, Paul Robeson, Josephine Baker used their platform as singers, poets, dancers, and writers to undo the injustice right here in America. And that has now transcended over 18 countries where I've produced socioeconomic empowerment programs uh, around the world with over a quarter of a million vulnerable children, young activists and advocates, educators and government officials who are all committed to this one thought that we deserve to live in a world where everybody has access to the resources that they need to thrive. Wow. That's amazing that you knew from such a young age that this was your calling. Oh, yeah. But you know, I talk to young people all the time who say, I knew exactly what I wanted to be when I was a child. But somehow that dream gets beaten down by society, by our parents who love us dearly, but want us to strive to be that doctor, that lawyer, that professor, to have security. They definitely don't mean any harm by discouraging us to be an activist or an artist. They simply, many of them, simply don't understand that there is power in pursuing a career based on what brings you joy. There's power in creativity. And it really is the foundation of all of the work that I do internationally. And that is to teach people how to create innovative solutions to socioeconomic problems that fuel poverty and oppression every single day. There's power in creative thinking. And that's what the Change Rocks Foundation does. Absolutely. So let's take it back even further. So what was your first foray into nonprofits? Mm. You know, if we're really going to take it back to the very beginning, <laughs> I have to reiterate the fact that I knew who I wanted to be as a child. I remember standing up to that bully on the playground, right? <laughs> that was my first foray into being a social impact leader, standing for what I believed in, trying to do the right thing. Now, did I get beaten up in return? Yep. <laughs> and unfortunately, that's what happens to us in this world of nonprofit sometimes, right? Yes. We know that the first idea, the second idea may not even work. There is certainly going to be failure along the way. But I was willing to take a couple of those beat downs because I knew, number one, what the right thing was to do. Number two, I started learning more. The more that I stood up for what I knew was right, the more that I got out eventually and fed the homeless and started my first position as a director of outreach programs right out of college. I learned what worked and what didn't work. I developed the Change Rocks Foundation, my humanitarian organization, based on what I saw was not working in nonprofit. My first nonprofit organization position as a director of outreach programs, I will never forget how the executive director got on my case about being in the community a lot, and she really felt like I should be behind my desk. Hmm. Well, I'd like to challenge you on that. As a director of outreach programs, my responsibility was to open the doors and invite in vulnerable children that didn't have access to music and the arts, to open up their world to see what was possible. And in order to do that, I needed to be among the people 
that I was charged to serve so that I found out what their problems were and also found out what their needs were and some of their ideas of how we combat poverty and understand really what resonated with them. They didn't get that. Then they would get on my case about all of this overtime that I was spending again in the community or on my case about bringing children into the office setting, which is where I learned how to run a business when my mother brought me into her business when I was just a child and I slept on the floor after school, but I saw how a business was run. The greatest education I've ever received in doing the work that I do did not come from a degree in school. It came from witnessing how a business was run, the sacrifices that needed to be made, the ideas that were generated from doing the work. So I wanted to open those doors for children to come in and yes, see how I run an office and see what's possible. And now those children throughout Maryland where I was in a nonprofit and, and around the world thank me all the time. Thank you for showing me what was possible. And so through seeing what didn't work, Seeing the nonprofits that I have worked with internationally, where executive directors are driving the brand new Range Rovers and have no idea what is going on in the communities. So, yes, misuse of funds, not holding nonprofits also responsible for the way that their funds are being allocated and used. I decided that I want to develop my own nonprofit and a nonprofit that was based on something that brought me great joy, and that was music and the arts. I found great power in teaching people how to think creatively about how we solve everyday problems. And now we've produced socioeconomic empowerment programs that range from academic enrichment and social impact leadership skills to entrepreneurship and um, human rights development all around the world. Wow. So can you talk a little bit about how did you handle rejection? So dealing with either former supervisors that would shut down ideas or mm. activities that you wanted to do or just your style of working mm. to even now where you're teaching these youth in terms of how to use the arts to become empowered and use it as a way to express yourself. Mm. Can you just expand a little bit about how you face rejection and, and what you teach youth? Sure. Number one, I don't receive it <laughs> because I understand that any form of rejection that I have received by and large is based on someone else's limited understanding of what's possible. And so I spend very little time arguing or debating about what can't be done. And I choose to invest more of my time in the asset model versus that deficit model that unfortunately so many of us function within the space of it can't be done, right? And so the way that I do that is by doing my research and just jumping out there and trying, you know? So if I have a concept, the most effective way to prove the efficacy of a method or a concept is to try it. And through that, I've learned what works and what doesn't work. Alhiri Village, which I think we'll talk about a little bit more later, I will say came from 14 years of developing programs. That wasn't the very first time that I have decided to develop a concept that would inspire transformational change. Now, anytime that I go into a government agency to present Alhiri Village, which is a sustainable community uh, that I'm developing in Abuja, Nigeria, I hear, why didn't we think of that? Well, how are you going to do that? 
And all of that has now become, can you do it here? And can you replicate it here? And we desperately need this model here. Yeah. That has come from not accepting rejection, but understanding that sometimes we have a limited capacity to understand new ideas that have never been produced before. And Alheri Village will be the first sustainable community of its kind in the entire country of Nigeria. That's great to hear. And I think that's very motivational for listeners who are potentially working on innovative programs, mm -hmm. trying to get grant funding, funding of any sort, and are hearing rejection after rejection, right. to know that it takes years of trial and error to it figure can. out what works. It yeah. can. And be ready and willing to prove that your method is effective. Mm -hmm. I have chosen to produce a pilot model because I want to make sure that works before I go after developing the more expansive 26-acre model that we need to develop. I want to prove our worth before we go after bigger partners. Um, I can give you another interesting example of a time that I taught in Kenya, and I teach educators about how uh, to integrate music and the arts into the curriculum, to teach core discipline subjects like math and reading. And I'll never forget in this community in Kenya, the teacher raised her hand and she said, ah, wait a minute. You mean to tell me that I can use music to teach my students math? I have been teaching them don't sing in class. Stop playing. But you're telling me I need to encourage them to play and to sing to learn. Yes. So many of the tools that we need to create more sustainable solutions <laughs> exist just within the framework of who we are as human beings. We are already creative beings, right? Yeah. And so now I'm teaching them how by using the arts, I have taught STEM subjects where students have increased their math scores by an upwards of 30% in less than one week by using music. Why? Because as human beings, not only are we naturally creative thinkers, but we also, in order to grow, need an opportunity to demonstrate what we've learned through the framework of our own culture, our own challenges, of our own experiences. And so in teaching these teachers to empower their students to be a part of the learning process, it completely changed the way that they thought about teaching in two hours. Wow. And do you apply any of these ideas to the Global Institute for Diversity and Change. Mm -hmm. So for a little background, the Global Institute for Diversity and Change is a for-profit and that works with organizations teaching, I mean, actually, you know, diversity, like, yeah. leadership, any programs where there is a need to improve competency skills mm -hmm. within areas that also improve equity, inclusion, diversity, and also social responsibility. That's what the Global Institute for Diversity and Change does. And absolutely, the only reason I think my programs are as effective as they are within GIDC is because, again, we're teaching participants from college students on up to uh, academic professionals how to think creatively. So I was sharing with you that I came to VCU, Virginia Commonwealth University, in 2014 as the first uh, diversity lecturer in residence for the Office of the Vice President for Health Sciences. And in that position, I developed curriculum for health science uh, majors, both pre-med as well as professional health science students. 
of how diversity practices could improve health outcomes and relationships with their future patients. And the core method that I used was what I call CSCT. It's Creative Socioeconomic Transformation. It's a method that I developed based on the premise that not only multidisciplinary um, approach, but empowering communities to think creatively about problem solving can create more effective and sustainable change. And so, yes, they were required to develop games to play with their future um, patients. They were absolutely encouraged to do role play as we talk about how to resolve conflict or how to develop relationships with their patients, how to learn more about their patient's story to help them in crafting the most effective solution to treat their patient's health. And the outcomes were, were amazing. Through that course, 100% of the students thought that my curriculum should be required for them to get their healthcare degrees. That's fantastic. And given that knowledge, one of the key issues that nonprofits are facing at the moment, you hear about diversity and inclusion constantly. It's now even shown up into funding applications where they ask you, what is your, do you have a DNI plan? What is it? How are you incorporating this into your programming? So what would be, if you had to offer, you know, a couple of pointers for nonprofits that are seeking to take on a diversity and inclusion initiative or you know, do more than just give lip service to it, yeah. do more than just have it on an application. Right. What would be your, your one or two tips for that? Mm. Number one would be understanding that diversity and inclusion within your organization, whether it's a for-profit or a nonprofit, is going to be your greatest asset. Whether it has been a business, I can think of a bank, and I won't mention the name, that is, unless they want to sponsor my project. <laughs> mm. I'll go ahead and say it. You never know which way this could go. I, I bank with Wells Fargo, and I will tell you that in the local area where I bank with Wells Fargo, the representatives are, are fine. They're great customer service representatives. But there is one particular branch, whenever I'm in Northern Virginia, that I am happy to go to every time. And it's only one singular branch. Why? Because of the diversity of their staff. I love going into that branch and not only hearing the multiple accents from different parts of the world, but there is something about the way that they receive me that is very special and different from any other Wells Fargo branch that I go to. I also have an opportunity to exchange stories from around the world with these women. They're 99% women when I've gone into that branch. Um, from around the world and we get to share stories with each other and there's this exchange that takes place that I have to say lifts my spirit. And that also helps me build more trust in how my money is being managed. Now, do the two correlate? <laughs> I don't know. I don't have any evidence behind that, but it is such a joyful experience every time I go into that branch. I can also tell you that in developing the sustainable community in Nigeria, a real problem, I'm sorry if I can back up for a second, that I see in the way a lot of government agencies are run and even nonprofits, it would seem that especially we as Americans go into vulnerable communities and think we're the ones that have the answer. And you with the accents or you that came from living in a hut in a village, that's a nice idea, but we'll save that for later or their ideas are very much diminished. 
And the greatest contributions that have ever been made to my organization are from the people who lived in the huts, who lived in the villages, who are trafficking survivors, who are my coordinator right now for the IDPs or internally displaced people that I work with in Nigeria. My coordinator is homeless. Now, I have built a home for her, but for all intents and purposes, she is thousands of miles away from where she was born and where she wants to go back to. So does she have a community, a place that she feels safe? Not entirely. We're working on it. But I would trust nobody else to coordinate IDPs than her. Not only has she survived some of the most horrific experiences that you could imagine escaping Boko Haram terrorists, but because she has had to figure out how to survive, those skills that she has developed because of her circumstances are invaluable to me. And so it's important for organizations to understand that if they want to be more effective, if they want to be more competitive in the global marketplace, if they want to ensure that their ideas are not just band-aids, but can, in, can affect sustainable change, then you want to not only diversify your organization, but make sure you employ some of the very people who have experienced the challenges that you're trying to solve. Hmm. That's where the answer lies. Yeah. So would you suggest that would almost be step number one? It isn't to look at... The most educated exactly. or... Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Now, there's a place for everybody. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't want anybody to have anybody get mad at me. <laughs> now, wait a minute. I need a job too. And I have viable ideas that need to be implemented. I think there's a space for everybody. So what I am challenging is that create room for everybody at that table. Don't discard the ideas or deny the person that doesn't have a master's or a PhD in conflict resolution or in MBA. Don't deny that person an opportunity to make significant contributions to the solutions that you need to develop because they have the ideas. Now you need to vet them, you know, to make sure that they are able to execute the work that you expect of them, but don't deny people that look differently than you, had a different upbringing than you, and that has existed within conflict. Don't deny them the opportunity to also make contributions. Absolutely. Absolutely. So what do you think are the barriers that nonprofits face when they're seeking to become more diverse? Or even the, what have you seen as the barriers with the organizations that you've worked with? Mm. That's a tough one. You know, I, I don't have the privy of being within each of the organizations that I work with, so I can't tell you exactly what's happening behind closed doors. What I can tell you, some of the things that I don't like that I see, is how those who are in positions of authority mistreat those that are less educated, and especially those who have struggled. I don't like that. I, mm -hmm. I've had to stand up for quite a few people in different countries where I see people being mistreated and say, nah, you would get so much further if you treat this person with perhaps no formal education at all, if you treat them with the same respect that you would for the president of an organization or the CEO, uh, you'd be amazed how much more that you could get out of them instead of creating this sense of fear. So I see that a lot as a deficit when it comes to diversity and inclusion within organizations internationally. And that is not valuing another person. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean in terms of their contributions, but their existence. Mm -hmm. 
whether I have served a president in another country or uh, am working with a goat herder or, or a child, I have found that there are three pillars of humanity um, that exist in every fabric of society. People want to be acknowledged, people want to be valued and respected. And any time that you don't respect those three common pillars that every human being wants, you create a space that is rich for conflict and also lack of productivity. So you want to create a reduction in your revenue, you want to create conflict within your organization, then don't practice those three pillars. But if you want the opposite effect, it's not that difficult to mm -hmm. be able to turn an organization around and to at least take the first step in diversity and inclusion. Very often I think that we think that means that diversity is bringing in people that come from a different racial background or religious background, and those are important, but how about people that just come from different socioeconomic backgrounds, right? Or speak different languages. There's value in that diversity as well. Mm -hmm. Very true. Okay, so let's switch gears a little bit here. Can you talk about your work with the Alhiri Village? How did this project get started? And you know, where did you get the idea? And, and what's mm -hmm. going on now? <laughs> yeah. So in 2015, I ventured into becoming an executive producer for a documentary about human trafficking called Amazing Grace Freedom Song. The basis of this came from some work that I had been doing in Atlanta, educating the public about human trafficking. At that time, I had been doing a lot of work in Atlanta and had no idea that it had become a hub for trafficking internationally. But first, let's start at the place where I was one of thousands, if not millions of people in this country that thought that human trafficking was a third world quote-unquote problem. I had certainly heard of isolated incidents of human trafficking in the United States, but until I started working on this project as an artistic director, I had no idea how prevalent trafficking was not only in Atlanta, but across the United States. And around that time, Boko Haram had kidnapped nearly 300 girls from Chibok, Nigeria. You've probably heard the girls referred to as the Chibok girls. And they were all sold for less than $12 each. Well, this sparked my interest to go from being a domestic documentary that would lift the veil on human trafficking in the United States to trying to take a deeper dive to understand the commonalities and perhaps the differences in trafficking internationally. And so I looked for the Chibok girls a couple of years into developing the documentary and eventually uh, identified some in Abuja, Nigeria. That took me to traveling to Lagos and Abuja, where I worked with uh, Boko Haram conflict survivors. And um, we were the first organization in the world at that time that had produced uh, emergency relief education programs for children that had been displaced from Borno, Nigeria, and been without formal education for, at that point, up to about three years. As per usual, I try to stay in contact with organizations. Sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. I never heard anything back from the organization that I worked with to provide the curriculum to the children. But two years later, got an email from my translator, who is now my IDP coordinator for Alheri Village, saying that we're about to become homeless again and please help. 
Well, we talked a little bit more about the situation and it looked bad. I had no idea what I was going to do. What I knew I didn't want to do was create another temporary solution, which is what I often see in uh, vulnerable populations. The temporary solution they were in was, of course, another refugee or IDP camp, which are, are havens for human trafficking, for sexual assault, and for more violence. And so it would have been easy. That would have been the easy thing for me to do was to spend a couple thousand dollars on developing another IDP camp and, you know, pat myself on the back, job well done, not my problem. I've already done what I needed to do. But typical for Yuandi Austin was, no, <laughs> that's not going to work. It's not going to work. If I'm going to get involved with this, I want to do something transformational. And the concept for Alheri Village was born. You know, every human being has essentially five needs to thrive. Can you name what they are? Think about it. <laughs> Think about it for a second before I reveal. Think about it. We need housing, education, food resources, the ability to make money. What else? What would number five be? No ideas. Okay. <laughs> Everybody's in suspense. Everybody's in suspense. We need education. Without any one of those resources, your life can become completely unstable. Well, Boko Haram IDP uh, survivors don't have any of those. So imagine the chaos that their life exists in. But what would happen if we created a safe haven where they had access to all five of those resources and many, many more in a structured environment over a specific amount of time? We then empowered them with how to build their own businesses. We then give them microloans for building their own home, reintegrate them into the community, and then bring in the next group to empower them. Something transformational could happen. And that's how Alheri Village was born. So at this point, we're still fundraising, but we've developed many, many more partners, both domestically and internationally. And I'm waiting on approval from the government to start building. So hopefully in the next couple of months, we'll be there. That's fantastic. There's so much that I love about that program and everything you started. The one thing I have to say is that it really resonates with me that you didn't just put a Band-Aid on the problem, mm -hmm. that you recognized that creating another camp would just be another Band-Aid. Giving right. them some resources would just be another Band-Aid. It had to be a full transformation in order for this to be a solution. That's right. You know? That's right. And, and we've already created so much success. With a lot of funds that I've raised thus far, I've been able to fund three startup companies, four Boko Haram IDPs who've taken my social entrepreneurship course online. They started with reusable sanitary napkins that the women have made themselves and I've paid for sewing classes. And so now they sew hijabs and they're making spices and selling them. And the latest business is a poultry farm um, that the women are running. And beyond that, they now know how to write a business plan that would be comparative to any major organization. And the women, the way the women have changed in their community is so inspiring. I will never forget a call I got from one of the IDP women that said, Ma, I'm leaving my husband. He is absolutely useless, right? <laughs> but more than that, because of course the plan was not to break up families. Right. However, a lot of these women, young women, 
were married when they were just children and they have been abused and they have been neglected and they have been rendered voiceless by men who were just taught to mistreat their wives. So the way the women have taught, told me now that their husbands treat them as partners because they're generating money for the family as well, the way the children look up to them, this is the essence of transformational change. Mm -hmm. That is not just making something look good, mm -hmm. but really transforming every fabric of that community from the individual to oppressive behaviors to how they generate money. That's how we transform communities. And so it's been amazing for me just to see how the women are transforming before even laying the first brick for Alhiri Village. True change is possible. You just have to step out there and take a chance on it. Yeah, yeah. and. To some extent, I think it also takes understanding where you fall in that spectrum. So mm -hmm. a Band-Aid is needed sometimes. Mm -hmm. Transformation is also needed. Mm -hmm. So understanding where your organization, where your purpose falls on that spectrum to say, this, what I want to do is provide transformational change. Mm -hmm. Or even what I want to do is provide a short-term solution, knowing that other organizations or other institutions are working on that long-term solution, mm -hmm. but right now there's acute needs that we need to address. That's so, absolutely right. Yeah. That's absolutely right. And we've even, with some funding, have just moved all of the IDP conflict survivors out of the camp that they were living in. Well, they became homeless at first, mm -hmm. and then they were reintegrated into another camp. But that camp is very violent, where some of the children who will live in Alhiri Village have been raped. So with some funds, we relocated them to another area. That's a temporary change, mm -hmm. to your point. That's the Band-Aid, while empowering them until we can get into Alhiri Village. Because by empowering them, what happens? You reduce the chances for exploitation. We know in some countries around the world, this is not just in Africa, which Africa often gets a really bad rap. And while... Huh. There is a high percentage of those who live in abject poverty who do live on the continent of Africa. This happens everywhere. But we know that there are families that will sell their child for a cell phone, that will sell their child for a bag of rice. In Lagos, Nigeria, in the Makoko slums, one of the largest slums in the world where I've worked, um, there are accounts that girls have told me about their 14 to 15-year-old friend being sold for three bags of rice or a cow, it happens. So what you do by taking these big leaps is at least reducing the chances that more people will be exploited by poverty or will fall victim to trafficking or, or other deplorable industries. So for someone who's listening to this and is interested in possibly pursuing international work, mm -hmm. where would you suggest they start or what advice would you give them? Mm -hmm. There are so many places that you can start, but I would say start by getting out of your the comfort of your backyard. I hear so many people who are passionate about activism who don't leave their city or have never left the state. Just going to another state can make a big change. But how about within your community? Let me start there, back up for a second, because I know some folks won't get angry. Back up for a second and just look at donating some of your time to a local organization so that you understand the needs of the people that need your service. That would be number one. But number two would certainly be get out of your city and get out of your state. 
the greatest lessons that I have learned beyond from the people that I serve have just been exchanging ideas with people who are completely different from me in another state, in another country, with those ideas, because there's no way that just one person can, can have all of the wealth of information there is in the world. But by getting out and seeing how other people solve these problems nationally or internationally has helped me create more effective solutions locally. It's also been a great benefit to the students that I teach and that I serve locally. So all of my students within Richmond, whether they are high school students or college students, they all have an opportunity now to work online with my students in other countries. So they have an opportunity to collaborate internationally with these ideas. That's going to improve the, the lives and the confidence of the people I work with internationally. And it's also going to give students locally an opportunity to apply their brilliant ideas. Young people are so smart. They have a lot of these solutions, and we also undervalue our youth a lot. But it gives them an opportunity to apply their ideas internationally before they've even gotten out into the real world. Now, think about how much more capable they are going to be as a global leader because they've already worked with global populations. So those are a couple of ideas that I have. But the last, I would say, is to not think that change starts off in big waves. It, it starts with a little ripple. And um, so sometimes that starts with just having lunch with that person that looks so different than you, maybe that wears a hijab or wears clothes that are completely different than you, and having conversations with them. I can't tell you how many organizations and corporations that I have conducted diversity and leadership programs with, I'll ask, do you talk to that person who's from another country? Have you ever asked them about their language or their family life or some of the challenges or some of the benefits in living in their country? Most of them don't. Take the time to have conversations with diverse people within your organization and your neighborhood before you get out there to even confront some of the bigger issues. Just having the, the confidence and the comfort in talking with people that are different than you, not only will you learn from that, but you will be far more effective as a leader, locally and internationally, by engaging in those conversations. Yeah, that's great advice. So I'm going to present some kind of generic questions right okay. now. All right. <laughs> so what would you say is the hardest part about leading an organization? Oh, <laughs> you don't have enough time for your podcast to hear the long <laughs> list. Oh, my gosh. I honestly don't sleep well anymore because as the leader, I'm constantly thinking about what's missing, what I need to do. I wear many hats and I don't complain about it. I'm just saying it's my reality. I wear many hats and depending on what kind of organization you want to run, you may be wearing a lot of hats. You know? You're wearing all the and, hats. Right, right. <laughs> there are a lot of opportunities and partnerships that I have to turn down because they come with a set of compromises that I find difficult to consider. A lot of them come from men, and so I will let you, your imagination, do the work. And, and a lot of you maybe listening to this would say, well, duh, why would you accept some proposition from a man who says that he could take care of your nonprofit organization or introduce you to the presidents of countries and da 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 if you just come to his hotel room? Well, because I think that there are a lot of people who do accept those compromises, unfortunately. And it could make things a lot easier for me. 
I find it fascinating that there are, and, and disgusting at the same time, that there are ambassadors and senior level government officials that make some pretty disgusting proposals to me when I am working on the behalf of trafficking victims and vulnerable people. But it goes to show you that until you step into solving some of these problems and educating um, people about some of their inhuman behavior, that these issues will continue to exist. But yeah, so there are challenges uh, being associated with some organizations. I have one I, I'll never forget said they love my proposal, but they want me to take out anything that has to do with boys in the proposal because this year they were only focusing on girls. And I said, well, I could do that, but that kind of goes against my holistic approach because I think part of the problem uh, with empowering girls is that we have to empower boys at the same time about how some of their negative choices that come from, you know, cultural norms within behavior um, are oppressive and hurtful to girls. And we have to educate them together. And so there are some opportunities that I miss, some that aren't based on a personal compromise, but even integrity of what I want to be associated with my organization. So those are some of the challenges. You wear a lot of hats. You, you may actually be surprised by uh, how much you are expected to compromise um, to get ahead, even within the world of humanitarian aid. It's plenty. But there are a lot of benefits, too. I was sharing with you earlier that within the past couple of years, I've had a lot of youth that I have taught 10 to 14 years ago when I first started producing these programs that have now developed their own youth empowerment organizations, their own social entrepreneurship organizations that are the first of their kind in each one of their countries who are inviting me back to not only come and observe their growth, but teach them how to expand their work and you can't beat that with a bat. I'm sorry. You know, it doesn't get any better than that for me to have worked with vulnerable children, some AIDS orphans who grew up in orphanages, who hit me on Facebook and say, hey, you remember when you told me I could be anything I wanted to be? And you taught me each of the steps I would need to take to get there? Well, I'm doing it today. It doesn't get any better than that. You know, because the work that we do today really isn't about us. It's really about laying a foundation that's going to make easier for the next generation to do better. And I'm, I'm blessed to still be here to see the fruits of that, that labor and investment take place. Oh, that's fantastic. So kind of along the same lines, what are you most proud of accomplishing in your journey so far? Oh, <laughs> I think that I would be a little redundant in, in just reiterating some of the testimonies that I just shared, those testimonies of young people who were in some pretty bad situations that learned from me early on that your life doesn't have to be defined by your circumstances. And while I hate the dastardly things that humans do to create these issues in the first place, the children that I work with internationally, I, I always share with them first that, you know, your situation sticks. There's nothing that I could do about the people who put you in this situation, but I can teach you the tools that you need to rewrite the next chapter in your life. And the numerous testimonies that I get from those children around the world who are now young adults is, is amazing. Those, that's my greatest joy. You know, there's a little girl right here in Richmond 
who was five years old when I met her, and she had been sold by her mother for drugs. Her mother's a prostitute. And I had only spent a little bit of time with her before I asked her one day, you know, what are your top three dreams? I was just curious. I love to hear what's going on in the minds of, of children. And she started off with the first three, and she kept going. So I said, okay, and that one sounds good, and that one sounds good, and that one sounds good. And then it was getting a little late. And as much as I wanted to hear more of her dreams, I knew it was time for her to go to bed soon. I said, okay, now I want you to think really, really hard about the top three. She had given me seven, so I decided to take it from three to ten. And her top three dreams became she wanted to build an elevator that had beds and endless food for anybody who was hungry and needed sleep because she had slept on the street many times before. She said, I also want to hug the world. That was amazing because I had told her many stories about my work around the world. And I began to hear how some of the stories that I had told her about children just like her around the world were starting to resonate with her. But her top dream was, I want to rewrite my entire story. This is from a five-year-old child. Oh. And it's with those dreams that our children have, even in the most adverse circumstances, that we've got to teach them that anything and everything is possible. And that's what fuels my passion for doing this work, to help her and children around the world to rewrite how their story will end. Those are the greatest blessings that I experience every day. That's fantastic. What advice would you give to your 20-year-old self? That's very interesting. What advice would I give to my 20-year-old self? I think that I, like a lot of people that work in this nonprofit sector, struggle with money. We struggle with the understanding that in order to be of service, then financial security should not be a priority. And while it has still never been a priority for me, I probably would have taught myself then to look a little bit differently at how money is what can change the world. I have reached a point now where I have self-funded 90% of my programs internationally in 18 countries. And while I'm very, very proud of that, I now realize that I'm in a chapter where I can build a model that could transform how we empower vulnerable communities. And it requires money that I don't have. <laughs> and so as myself 20-something years later, I'm thinking, doggone it. Have I done this the right way? Right? And I have no problem being transparent about that. And I tell you why, it's based on a lesson that I teach young people that I work with all the time. And that is every day that you wake up and whichever God you serve puts air in your lungs, you have a chance to start over again. And so I am in a different phase in developing this nonprofit where I understand the power of money, but I also understand the value of partnerships coupled with my international experiences that are going to take the Change Rocks Foundation to a level beyond what I thought was possible. Because now what I've done, interestingly enough, because I have chosen to fund my programs myself internationally, which is unheard of at the scale of which I'm funding these programs, 
Now I have the respect of people. They also have seen the seen measurable results of my work that now have created a demand for my work. So I'm now no longer just going to partners with my hand out asking for support. They're now coming to me saying, you could really transform the way we manage this issue. Mm-hmm. Or my children's lives could really be impacted by you coming in and teaching curriculum of social impact leadership. There's value in that. And so with that value, I'm able to impact even more lives. So finding a greater balance between understanding the power of money and not for selfish gain, but personal security isn't a bad thing. Right. <laughs> coupled with the opportunity to impact the lives of that many more people with the right financial resources. Absolutely. What is some bad advice that you hear being told often? Oh, it can't be done. (laughs) I would say that that's it. Mm -hmm. Just because something hasn't been done before doesn't mean that it can't be done. It just means it hasn't been done yet. Right. And that's what I get really excited about with producing these programs is showing people what's possible. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. And what advice do you have for any budding activists? Mm. So not necessarily just international work, but activists as a whole. Sure. You know, something that's been on my heart a lot lately is I see a lot of young activists that seem to think that being angry, being threatening to certain groups of people who have by and large been identified as oppressors, being threatening or calling people out is activism. And in my experience internationally, that's not effective activism. Activism should not be threatening. It should not involve bullying. It should not involve belittling or holding any one group of people responsible for oppression. By doing that, what you're doing is you're limiting your chances of creating a space where allies could come in and help you to be more effective. So I think we need to think more about kindness and love, which, trust me, I understand can be difficult when you see so much injustice, when you see little black boys and girls being gunned down by those that were hired to protect and serve. Of course it makes me angry. I'm not going to deny that that emotion exists But I also know that it is a futile emotion unless I am able to gain the trust and the ear and the willingness of those who are in influential positions to help me in solving the problem. And so activism does not require anger or your ability to speak louder than anybody else or to be threatening. It really requires you to listen and to invite people into these really difficult conversations. That's what I would say to young activists. Yeah. For people who are interested in pursuing international work, Mm -hmm. how would you tell them to respond to the question or the comment that there is so much work to be done domestically? Why would you go to another country? First of all, there is so much poverty and suffering around the world, unfortunately, and it is uh, uh, sadly the result of a system that has been designed for poverty to exist. There is so much oppression and poverty around the world that there is a lot of work for everybody to contribute to. 
you know, one of the reasons that I decided to do work internationally at first was because my work was more valued internationally. I, I found there were a lot of challenges sometimes in working in local communities where children or even adults weren't receptive to my work. The other one has to do with the fact that I didn't want to create redundancy in local communities. That didn't make sense to me. It makes a lot more sense to me to create opportunity where there's a deficit. And so, for example, we've talked about um, the fact that I'm launching a cultural tour and economic development summit in Nigeria fall 2019, so that local Richmond leaders, movers and shakers, have an opportunity to not only spread their wings and also get more experience internationally, but strategically develop relationships that will perhaps make them feel more comfortable in developing those international relationships that can help them serve and perform better locally. The world is such a small place and we've got to eliminate this way of thinking that is, well, that's their problem in Nigeria or in Israel or in Taiwan. If one of us suffers, all of us suffers at some point. Right? So the issues that affect the children that I work with in Nigeria, sadly, will come right back to the United States at some point. The route that traffickers take today has changed very little from that that happened during the transatlantic slave trade. There was, as a matter of point, as a matter of fact, I'm sorry, a point in time when over 600,000 Nigerians were enslaved and brought right to Richmond and Petersburg, which during the height of the transatlantic slave trade had the largest numbers of enslaved Africans in this country. There are still over 200,000 Nigerians that are trafficked to Europe and America every year. These issues are not Nigerian issues or Russian issues or Chinese issues. They are human issues. And so we're all responsible for one another. So I think that wherever you find your gift and where you find that your work is appreciated the most, I think that's where you go. With the understanding that you still need to come back and serve local communities that just may not understand the value of international work. Um, so most of it, I think, is rooted in fear of not going outside of the country. So certainly there are problems right in Richmond and in Petersburg um, that need to be addressed. But sometimes the greatest education is getting outside of your community to learn the best, identify the best solution. Yeah, absolutely. So what does the future hold for all of your projects and where can people learn more? Yeah, I'm really excited about the future of both of my organizations. My consultancy, the Global Institute for Diversity and Change for the past 14 years has funded my humanitarian programs through the Change Rocks Foundation. I've also loved using music and the arts as tools to not only teach, but promote my work internationally. And uh, in 2019, we're excited about merging those three entities under one umbrella, uh, which will be Change International, which is still rooted in the ethos of those three entities. And that's teaching people how to think creatively about how we solve the problems that promote poverty and oppression around the world. And beyond that, I'm really excited about launching Alhiri Village. This is not a project that I intend to just impact the lives of 
200 Boko Haram conflict survivors that we're working with, but with the right support and partnership, will change how the world values, manages, and empowers vulnerable communities around the world. Uh, because the greatest asset that sadly we still don't understand is that solutions lie within those who are most vulnerable and oppressed. We just have to give them the skills and the platform to make these contributions and ultimately for their voices to be heard. And how about your documentary, Amazing Grace? When can we expect to see that? (laughs) We are hopeful that Amazing Grace will finally be complete in 2019. But the last piece of that puzzle is actually capturing the solution that we have for reducing the number of vulnerable people Mm -hmm. that are exploited by poverty in human trafficking. And that has to still be captured in the film with the development of Alheri Village. So so it all ties together. It all ties together. together. (laughs) Oh, patience. I left that one out of uh, the equation for working in nonprofit and doing this work. It takes a lot of patience. Absolutely. But understanding, if you're very, very clear about what your ultimate mission is, then each one of these pieces will will come together and it'll serve for the better good of the people that you serve. Thank you so much. Do you have any parting words of wisdom? (laughs) You know, one of my favorite quotes by Dr. Martin Luther King was, "Our, our lives end the day that we ignore the things that matter. I'm paraphrasing it. And I hope that people that are listening to this podcast will understand that each one of us individually have so much more power to change the things that we don't like. We just have to take a chance on stepping out and being a part of the solution. And that's one of the greatest joys that I get. And that is transforming conversation to action. But You don't have to wait to hear one of my lectures or uh, participate in one of my workshops to make that happen. Most of us already have the answers within our heart. We just have to step out and take a chance that our solution can make a difference in the lives of someone that needs our help. That's fantastic. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Before you go, would you like to receive exclusive tips and resources to help you build an exceptional nonprofit organization? If this sounds like something you'd like, head on over to thirdsuite.com and sign up for our weekly newsletter. This is a short email packed with tons of helpful links, as well as exclusive opportunities available for subscribers only. Okay, guys, thanks so much for listening. See you next week.